This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. U.S. companies are trying to persuade the Trump administration not to increase tariffs on China. Around 300 people are testifying before the office of the U.S. Trade Representative this week about how their businesses and customers would be impacted by the tariffs. The USTR has received over 1,600 comments on President Trump's plan to expand tariffs to an additional $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. To this point, President Trump has not pulled back from that idea, but Congress is considering some sort of measure that would prevent such a move. Trump has asked to meet with his counterpart, President Xi Jinping, at the G20 summit at the end of this month, which we just mentioned he will do. China has not yet agreed to a meeting between the two men up till this point today. With more on the impact of the additional tariffs and the move by business leaders, we are joined by Mary Lovely, economic professor at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Also with us is Phil Levy. Uh, He will be joining us uh, coming up, uh, chief economist at logistics firm Flexport and an adjunct professor of strategy at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Mary, Phil, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to be with you. Thank you. Great to have you with us today. This letter that came out uh, just a couple of days ago, Mary, by the leaders of all of these different companies, how much of an impact do you think it, it actually can have? Uh, it depends on who you're looking at. Um, we saw in previous rounds that there were numerous opposition to uh, the previous tariffs uh, that President Trump levied on China, Chinese imports, and um, there were some adjustments made uh, in the very, very first round, very small adjustments made. But overall, mostly the comments have largely been ignored. Phil, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it is important that businesses get out there and say what impact this will have. It's not clear that that has much direct effect on the Trump administration, but it does, of course, communicate to members of Congress and others how serious this can be, and that in turn has an effect. The the type of impact, Phil, that that these business leaders believe could occur, how significant in your mind could there be uh, of an impact across the United States? I think it's very significant. I think it's important to remember that the damage we've seen so far from tariffs has been on a very preliminary application. And part of what the Trump administration did when it was putting its tariffs on China is it went first with the products that were supposed to be least painful and easiest to handle. Well, that necessarily means that the stuff that's left is harder and more painful. And that's what these companies are describing. That these are serious interruptions to supply chains, and these are things that are really going to hit consumers in the pocketbook. And and the supply chain specifically, uh, with the work that you do at at Flexport, uh, how impacted could they be? Because you're talking about, in many cases, industries that rely on China for getting a lot of the products. They don't have the infrastructure here in the United States to be able to build out a lot of these items. That's right. This is the sort of secret to how a lot of American businesses have managed to be competitive, that they do parts of the production process in the United States using those uh, skills we have and and the capital we have, but they complement that with work that occurs in other countries. And you put it together, and you have a competitive product. If you cut the second part out of that, you don't have a competitive product, and you're in serious trouble. 
Mary? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, we see now, this is, uh, going back to your first question and Phil's response, this is another uh, at, uh, view on why these types of testimonies are so important, because country, companies come forward and explain exactly how they're using these complementary inputs and how difficult it is to find alternative supplies. I mean, one can very glibly say, well, you can just get it someplace else, and that just seems to be completely ignorant of the reality that a lot of business leaders are, are dealing with, which is that there aren't alternative suppliers. As Phil mentioned, um, in some sense, the pain was backloaded. The early stuff uh, the administration thought would be things that there would be alternative suppliers for. I don't think that that was in, uh, entirely true, but nevertheless, there was an attempt to to reduce the pain in the early rounds, and now we're going to see that this last round is going to be very painful. How cl- how close do you think we are see we are from seeing? an impact from the tariffs that have already been in place, Mary, because when you look at the the growth numbers and and some of the jobs numbers, they have still been pretty solid. But the expectation is that at some point here in 2019 that we will see more and more of an impact from the tariffs that have already been put in in place. Well, that is correct. Um, Also, you know, the U.S. economy is huge and exports and imports are only a uh, you know relatively small part of it what really matters is i believe um, business confidence business expectations and we are i think early on as phil mentioned these these were viewed as preliminary and temporary the administration has always promised us sort of a big win a reset of the relationship that would open up new opportunities for american businesses as it gradually becomes clearer and clearer that that's not where this is going to end up, uh, businesses start to rethink uh, investment. They see their costs going up, uh, may pull, be pulling back on investment for that reason, and we'll start to see uh, some slowing. We also will see slowing in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, making the Chinese economy grow more slowly may be part of this make them hurt until they give strategy. but. Right. It's also bad for the global economy, and we have to remember that the U.S. is the second largest exporter in the world. So the, the, uh, what happens outside of U.S. borders still remains important to U.S. businesses. Do you believe that, that the testimony and the letter that was sent to the president will have any kind of impact on his thought process in this? Because he has gone down this road a, a, quite a long length of, of time now with the tariffs already been in place and obviously talking about the additional $300 billion. I would think in his mind, he's probably saying, I can't go back at this point. That's a, you know, that will, that will hurt his position. And especially going into 2020, and this is where it brings in the political side, you have the 2020 elections coming up as well. Well, it would be a Fools errand to try to interpret President Trump's thought processes, I think. Right. But um, I do think, um, you know, he tends to look at the market. The market has remained fairly fairly steady. Um, that's missing what's happening in the real economy, I think, underlying uh, market outcomes. And um, I do be- agree with Phil that it's very important um, how these testimonies are heard on Capitol Hill. Uh, we have to remember just a few weeks ago, President Trump threatened tariffs on all imports from Mexico uh, if he didn't get certain demands on immigration. And we saw that there was a lot of opposition behind the scenes from 
Congress, uh, Republican members of Congress uh, in particular, uh, speaking with the president, and the president basically found an alternative route for that. And, and Phil, I would think at this point the uh, opportunity, the potential of Congress to take some sort of action is significantly higher than maybe six months ago. It's certainly higher than six months ago. And I think, you know, Mary has it just right. The, it's unlikely that President Trump fundamentally changes his views on tariffs. He's been very consistent on this point. He's held these views for decades. When he speaks out about this, he says our best solution is to bring in you know, many billions of tariffs revenue from abroad. Never mind that that's not quite how it works. Um, but I think he is you know, subject to pressure. You did see that increased probability of Congress acting. And I think the the Mexican episode that, that Mary points to is exactly the right one to look at, which is I don't think the president ever lost his desire to do it. It just became clear that there was mounting opposition and he had to pull back. So now, Mary, I guess the focus is truly on the G20 summit coming up at the end of the month uh, with President Trump saying that he is going to meet with President G uh, of what the tenor of that conversation is. And then maybe more importantly, what happens immediately thereafter if we see further negotiations between the two sides? Well, I'm afraid we see these high-level meetings uh, creating a lot of heat, but very little light. And right. uh, we have seen in the past that, you know, President Trump has had high-profile meetings, and very little has come for it. You cannot negotiate a trade agreement or fundamental changes to very, very difficult issues like the role of state-owned enterprises uh, in international trade, etc., uh, with simply a meeting between the two heads of state. Um, we don't really know how much has gone on below the lev- below this executive level, uh, but we do know that what has transpired over the last six not- months has had a chilling effect on relations between the two countries. So, um, you know, I'm one who is optimistic. I thought they could have reached a deal earlier in the year. Um, so um, I, unfortunately, am more pessimistic on this meeting. I don't see where the groundwork has been laid or the changes in relations for there to be a real serious change in how the two countries relate. It's possible there'll be some wallpaper put on this, but fundamental changes I don't see. Phil? Phil? Yeah, I'm putting me in the pessimistic camp, too. I think Samaria's exactly right. Usually when you see a leader's summit that has some notable success, it's actually the sort of tip of the iceberg kind of thing where you've had a lot of staff working for a long time, setting everything up, and then the leaders come together and they remove, remove a few brackets and they close the deal. It's not at all clear that this has happened. I think there was a fundamental difficulty in having a U.S.-China deal because of the way the Trump administration had approached things. That even before the latest blow-up starting in May, you had had a, a tough choice they were going to have to make, which was, were you going to take a sort of a light deal where China would promise some new market access, some purchases of, you know, liquid natural gas, stuff like that, but basically just accept something and call it a win? Or were you going to hold out for something deeper, which was getting at all the kind of structural issues that the Trump administration has highlighted? That was already a really difficult problem because they were not going to get a deep structural deal in the short run. I think that has, in the last month or so, been compounded by the extent to which you add on a layer of sort of nationalism, animosity, and national security concerns. 
and those are hard to peel back quickly. I mean, and it's coming from the U.S. You know, with concerns about is is Huawei a security risk? But it started to come from China in response, saying, you know, we will not be pushed around by U.S. aggression.、Um, that makes it that much hard. It was already hard to have sort of a weekend deal where this all came together. This makes it harder still. And, and with some of the components that Mary laid out, Phil,、uh, like state-owned enterprises, and you mentioned kind of the the structure of of the government and how business is impacted in China by that. It has been、uh, a common theme of what U.S. businesses and the U.S. government have had to deal with for such a long period of time. It would seem to be an incredible belief to, that you would be able to see a, a, an almost a 180 degree turn by all of those elements in the span of six months. It's, it's almost not believable. It is not believable. <laughs> I'll go all the way there. Yeah. Really, and that's the problem. So, what you might get on some of these things, and so yes, there's a long list. It's how does China treat investors? What does it do with cyber attacks?、Um, what kind of subsidies regime? The China 2025. Yes, these are not things which are going to get somehow fixed overnight. Some of these are issues where even sort of allied countries like those in Europe. Have different views in the United States. What is the acceptable level of government subsidies in an economy? So there isn't an, a universally accepted right answer. There is no chance that we're going to snap to such a right answer in six months, even if we had one.、Um, that's exactly the problem. You might get slow and steady progress, which is what previous administrations have tried、mm-hmm. with mixed success. The Trump administration has been noted for a different approach, which is let's assume there's a right answer. We'll hold up a big stick and we'll hit you with it if you don't agree to that right answer. Mary, that's exactly the strategy, and it's doomed to failure.、Uh, as I said, I think at best we'll get a little bit of window dressing if there's even any sign of,、uh, you know, a, a victory, you know, real or 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 not here. Uh, unfortunately, the big stick doesn't work with big countries, and particularly not with China. So, we do have real issues、uh, with China that need to be addressed. Unfortunately, I feel this is taking us backward. I did want to point out that other countries, even though they share many of our concerns, are continuing to、uh, do business with China, invest、yeah. in China. It's almost absurd on its face to think that the rest of the world will not want to be part of. Uh, the growth of the Chinese economy,、um, and right behind it, Indian economy.、Uh, you know, these economies are set to to grow much more rapidly than the United States, even by 2030. And businesses have to be looking at that. They have to be looking at where they're going to get their global sales and profit growth. American companies do want to have better conditions for their businesses inside China.、Um, And、um, I think, unfortunately, they're going to be, in the end, sadly、uh, disappointed by what comes out of this. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking with Mary Lovely of Syracuse University, Phil Levy, who's、uh, at、uh, the he's the chief economist at Flexport. Your comments at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at Biz Radio one thirty two or my Twitter account at Dan Loney twenty one. We're talking about the tariffs and the trade issues between the United States and China. Again, eight four four nine four two seven eight Six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio one thirty two, or my Twitter account at Dan Loney twenty one. So then, Mary, what are the expectations in your mind that that businesses and and the U.S. government 
in general should have in dealing with China when you have such a framework that has been set in stone for such a long period of time? And as mentioned, you may be able to get some incremental change out of it, but but significant change is very hard to expect. It is, and we've been at it a long time, as Phil, Phil mentioned. But, you know, I think we have to have a clear view of what we think is, is fair trade. Um, saying that all goods will be produced by private companies that are, have no subsidies to the government is on its face uh, a non-starter. Uh, people could point to the United States and look at, say, Boeing and its, its uh, defense contracts and say that's not a company that doesn't have some kind of subsidization. So, you know, we really don't have, as, as Phil pointed out, there is no right answer. We're not even, you know, sort of having this conversation that gets us in the neighborhood of a acceptable answer. I won't say right answer since there's a lot of different answers, but something that we could all, uh, and by all I mean the United States and, it, and its close allies, could agree to. Um, so that's on industrial subsidies, on the role of state enterprises, um, on I think there are also issues that really aren't on the table yet, which is the role to which China has subsidized foreign direct investment. Uh, and this is an issue that a lot of co- countries really need to deal with. Um, it's a way that they have uh, really hooked into global supply chains. And um, it certainly has a lot to do with the movement of American uh, jobs, I think, to China, but also to increase profits for a global multinational. So, you know, there's a lot there to talk about, but I feel like we're just really not having that conversation in any serious way with our allies. Phil? Yeah, you know what's sad about this whole thing? That this discussion often breaks down into, should we do something about China or not? And if we instead cast it as, should we do something effective about China or not, it would be a much more fruitful discussion. And the thing that's really too bad is there are effective measures that we could take. They're not dramatic, overnight, you know, symmetry, you know, press spray kind of events. They're things that take sort of patient commercial diplomacy. But just to give a couple of examples... When we were pushing the Trans-Pacific Partnerships, and it started in the Bush administration, was continued and fully developed in the Obama administration, that was something where China felt serious pressure, that it might need to accommodate a new set of rules. And I think even in bilateral diplomacy, if the U.S. were more focused, if we were able to pick just a couple of issues and on reasonable points um, and, and press on those, we might get somewhere. You had started by asking, you know, what can businesses hope for? If this were done right, there really are possibilities to do something. The current approach is not getting us there. And because of the fact that the United States backed out of TPP, it took out, and obviously the group as a whole, Phil, was a significant force. But having the United States step out of that, that's taking a significant chunk out of, out of what potentially could have been. That's right. I mean, given the U.S. size, Mary can correct me on the numbers, I think it dropped from something like 40% to about 15% of global trade when the U.S. walked, um, which it's still got Japan, it's still got Australia, it's got significant countries, but it didn't have the effect of setting new global norms. And that was what we had been pushing towards as a country. You try to get a right answer out there, and then there'll be pressure to conform to that. So, you know, the vision was get agreement across the Asia-Pacific, 
maybe get agreement across the Atlantic with Europe, all of a sudden there's a new global norm. And if you want access, if you're China, and you want access to these markets at that level, it's not shutting them out completely, but you want to be part of this, you need to meet those new standards. Mary? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly right. It's um, something that, you know, was walked back early on uh, and wouldn't fit the sort of Trump um, model of, you know, big, splashy things that come from rattling, you know, a big stick, but could have been very effective over, over the long run. Another area where I think we can make progress and progress is being made is in, um, you know, requirements for joint ventures as opposed to wholly owned foreign subsidiaries of U.S. firms. Uh, that's something that I think we could, yep. and, our, and there is progress being made, um, but would require, again, this kind of quiet, persistent diplomacy, working not only with our allies, but also with, with multinational corporations um, to see clearly what, what pressures they're facing and how the U.S. government can you know, put a finger on the scale toward allowing wholly owned uh, foreign firms, which, uh, foreign affiliates, which would help with the uh, issues regarding intellectual property. How significant is that specific issue uh, that you raised right there? Because it, it, the intellectual property side of this has obviously been a great concern for, for such a long period of time. And, and in the process of trying to do business with China, you, you've had to be able to kind of open your, your briefcase of, uh, of data to, the, to, their, uh, to, to their country. I think in some realms, it's something that businesses themselves have found a way to live with. Um, you know, it's really about uh, who is going to receive the rents from intellectual property, with yeah. China wanting a bigger piece than we certainly think they're entitled to. Um, but in other areas, it's really very, very difficult, and we have to think about working uh, on a wider scale. Um, and that, in particular, is in the Internet sphere, um, where we're increasingly seeing uh, splintering of the Internet and... Um, I think there really hasn't been any good models for cooperation across the two spheres. And that could potentially become worse, Mary, if China, in fact, kind of separates itself even farther from the world of the Internet, correct? I would say it's, it's already pretty far from the world yeah. of the Internet. Yeah. Uh, we're certainly seeing it in academics. I, I mean, I would be interested in hearing from Phil but what he's seeing. Uh, for example, um, to work with Chinese colleagues now, I'm required to basically use Chinese software, which I don't use. So yeah. I work through an intermediary, which means basically on the scientific front, we are seeing this splintering because of this issue in China. Of course, we're seeing pushback in the U.S. in terms of uh, surveillance of uh, Chinese-born U.S scientists. So, again, we're seeing this splintering, and I think long-term it is going to have a very big impact, not just on developments in, um, you know, in information technology, but also in other aspects of science and discovery. Phil? Yeah, I, I think Mary raises an excellent point. I think, to me, a really key question here, which the Trump administration has not addressed, is what is the long-term vision for coexisting with China? Because we're not going to vote them off the planet. They're still going to be there. They're going to be an enormous economy. As she said earlier, quite correctly, the rest of the world is not terribly interested in disengagement or quarantine. So they're still going to be dealing with China. They're going to be getting parts at 
you know, at lower prices. So what is our goal? Where, where are we heading towards? And so there is a school of thought, I think, in the administration, which is China is worrisome, let's disengage. Right. If that's the approach, you ought to have a viable end game in mind, and I have not heard one put forward. Great insight by you both. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Phil. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Lovely at Syracuse University. Phil Levy, Chief Economist at Flexport. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 